2: Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox, and I'm your social worker with a microphone. You're listening to the Katherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. I have two guests joining me this morning. My first guest is Danny Kaufman. He's the author she, of the author of "Untying the Knot," a husband and wife story of coming out together. And by the way, the the author of the book is David L. Kaufman, M.D. Uh, Danny is a radiologist uh, living in Santa Rosa, California, um, for 20 years, was a happily married man with children when he realized he was a gay man. However, before he could confide this to his wife, Kathy, who he had been married to for 20 years, she told him she had something she needed to talk to him about. So we're going to hear all what she had to talk to him about, and we're going to be really talking about his... Uh, the book, Untying the Knot. Welcome to the show, Danny. Nice to have you on this morning.
3: Thank you. Thank you.
2: So, uh, we started to talk a little bit before we got on the air, but Untying the Knot, a husband and wife story of coming out together. Let's start with that, because you had been married for 20 years.
3: You'd been married
2: before, too. This was your second marriage? This
3: is my second marriage, yes.
2: And three kids, two by your first marriage, one by Kathy. Kathy, your second wife. So, what's the story? And then all of a sudden, you suddenly realize I'm a gay man.
3: Um, yeah. I had this four years ago I had this flaming epiphany that there was no way I could argue with it. There was no way I could deny it. All those years I thought I was attracted to women I was really I'm really attracted to men and when I thought about it I realized there were tons of men that I had been attracted to. I just blew it off or, or denied it or or tried to pretend it wasn't there and then so I was going through that, and it, at the very beginning, I didn't want to do it, And but then I gradually began to understand that there were a lot of benefits. For one thing, I've always been very feminine, and being gay gives me permission to be more feminine, I felt. And so I was thinking, this isn't a bad thing. This isn't so bad. This is kind of cool. Um, but I got to tell Kathy, how am I going to tell my wife? And before I could... A few weeks after my epiphany, before I could tell her, she said, I need to talk to you. She said, I'm really sorry, but I realize I'm a lesbian. And I said, you're a lesbian. I said, I just figured out I'm gay. <laughs> and she said, yeah, really. Well, I think you're the perfect couple. <laughs> and so um, we stayed. We, um, she moved out. We separated uh, a few months later. Um, she, we stayed best friends. We we were always very close as friends during our marital marriage time together. There, it was really it was really a good marriage. It wasn't like it was a bad marriage. Um,
2: well, let's talk about that because I think you know I mean you it wasn't as if you were with somebody for eighteen months or two years. I mean you were together for twenty years.
3: Yeah, twenty two so, years.
2: So what's I want to ask you questions that I know
3: no, listeners fine. will
2: be thinking about. Okay, well, first of all, I'll take you back to, like, puberty, for instance, because, you know, you oftentimes when one goes through puberty, all, you know, the hormones are raging. And was at that time, I mean, you said you always felt like you were feminine, but did you feel like, well, I'm attracted to, to boys, but I don't, I can't, I mean, consciously, I don't want to be, so I'm just going to... I
3: didn't consciously... I I didn't consciously realize that I was attracted to men. Um, I didn't consciously realize that I was attracted to men until after I realized, after I had my gay epiphany, and then I thought about it and realized I always had been. I just denied it the whole time.
2: So what would you say, and I have friends, perhaps in this position, but like, that maybe you're bisexual, you know that sexuality is kind of, and I, you talk about that in the in your book. Um, it's kind of on a continuum. I mean, there are people who are yes, straight, straight and gay, gay, and then there are people sort of, you know, that. Then there bullshit. are people who are in
3: between, and yeah, according to Kinsey, you know, I've read Kinsey's well, at least the part about the part about homosexuality in Kinsey's book. That Kinsey's thing is that most of us really aren't strictly straight or strictly gay. Most of us are somewhere in between. And my own experience is there aren't too many people that are solidly in the middle, half and half, but that a lot of us, you know, I observed during my time in the gay community that, that most of the gay men that I knew, and I knew dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of them, most of the gay men that I knew figured out they were gay at puberty because they realized that they couldn't like females the way that their peers did and so they had to they had to face the fact that they were gay and then maybe less than half didn't really figure it out until they were older you know one guy I dated didn't figure it out until he was like 60 years old and and so the um so some of us some some gay men can figure it out quickly and some gay men don't figure it out until much later
4: what
2: about the cultural impact? Do you think that has a lot to do with it? I mean, I, for two things, I was thinking just the culture at large, but then your own family culture. And I know you talk about in your book when you finally came out, um, and maybe much to your surprise, I mean, family, friends, coworkers, were some, for the most part supportive, so that the issue was kind of your own shame or guilt or whatever it was that prevented you from accepting your gayness.
3: Yeah, I think it was my own shame or guilt. Um, one of the things I spend a lot of time thinking about um, is that the, my family was my family's has never been my family's always been both my parents they, they were divorced when I was very young, but they both they 're both pretty open minded and liberal and and supportive of everything and my parents were it 's not that my family wouldn 't have supported me so much as I was gay, but my peer group you know um, understand that i I grew up in Southwestern Michigan, which is an extremely conservative part of the already conservative Midwest. And it it was just outside the realm of my possibility. When I went through puberty, I didn't realize that there was such a thing as that it was possible to be a man who was a guy who was attracted to other guys. When, when I went through puberty, there were those, those guys that were, that were subject to great derision from my peers that they called homos. Um, but my understanding was a homo was, A guy who wants to dress in women's clothes but still likes girls. And I didn't even realize I didn't even understand what gay really was until like I was like twenty years old and my sister had gay friends and she told me I had made a comment about gay men liking to wear women's clothes and she said that's not really what it means and I said, Really? What does it mean? And she told me and I was really shocked because I didn't even that didn't even cross my radar before. It never even occurred to me as a possibility and I, I come, you know i was I was a small child in Kalamazoo, Michigan in the nineteen sixties and and you know it's not that the people were mean or or oppressive it's just they were just extremely naive, nobody knew anything about gay or transgender and so you know That's there were was...
2: you know when I was reading your book and i'm older than you are i don't want to admit it, but <laughs> I grew up a little bit before you did, and i'm thinking. That, and in a small town, but in the Northeast, and how different that was than, say, in in Michigan, because there was one uh, young man in my class, and he was gay, and we all knew that he was gay, and that was just the way it was, and it wasn't a secret, um, and we were all friends. And I thought, but we were very much aware.
3: Well, that's really cool. Yeah. No, we didn't. We didn't have that. There was no, there was no knowledge or understanding of of there was no knowledge or understanding of gay or transgender issues at all when I was a child. Or uh, like I said, I truly didn't even understand what gay meant until I was probably about 20 years old. And, um, I'm sure that many, many times as a small child, I had said to my mother that I wished I was a girl and I think she just blew it off and she doesn't really remember it now. Um, you know, nowadays we know that when, a, a a child that you think is a boy starts talking about how he wishes he was a girl you gotta pay attention to that but you yeah. know back then we didn't nobody knew anything about that and and there was no there was no framework for me to 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 put my feelings and, and ideas about being attracted to men or being transgender there was nothing for me to put that framework into and so in the words of a, of a friend a few years ago I just went through my life, through the stages of my life, doing what I was expected what I thought I was expected to do. I just, you know, the the transgender thing figures very strongly in my background and in my childhood. It was it was something I I was quite conscious of, as a small child. Um, but, you know, I was born in a male body. I had, you know, there's no such thing. I, I was telling somebody yesterday that that I didn't even, I didn't even accept the fact that it's possible to be transgender until I realized I was a year ago. Um, I, so you've I, taken
2: quite a, you know, just quite a...
3: It's, a, been quite a it's been quite a wild ride, yes. Yeah, quite a wild <laughs> ride, I
2: would say. It's an amazing ride. Um, and so I just want to kind of put this in a framework. So then you got married, kind of did the traditional what yes. people do, and you were a doctor, which obviously is also a... Well-respected traditional profession, Um, radiologist, get married, but then it sounded like your relationship with your wife, you know, people, maybe the expectation would be, oh, it must have been so painful, and you had to sleep together and have sex, but it really wasn't that way. It sounded like your marriage was uh, pretty good, even sexually, maybe not fabulous, but compared to, you know, heterosexual couples that I know, uh, it didn't sound so bad.
3: No, I think... I think we had a really good marriage and we talked about it back, you know, a few years ago when we were going initially both going through our initial coming out and, and thinking about it and talking about it, that, you know, our marriage was not a mistake. We don't think our marriage was a mistake. We don't think that we never should have got married. We, we had a wonderful time together and we loved each other and we still love each other. And, and we were very supportive. It was a really good marriage, you know, um, You mentioned the sexual side of the relationship, you know, as people would imagine, the sexual side of our relationship had had cooled off dramatically by the end, and there were some significant issues there, but at the beginning it wasn't bad, at the beginning it was really good, and we really, you know, from my point of view we really didn't have any reason to think there was anything different about us or anything weird about us. I was very much, you know, uh, I think I said this in the book, I was a doctor at a respected practice in the community. Uh, we went to Disney World on vacations. We had a house and a dog and a car. Uh, you know.
2: Sounds boring.
3: <laughs> I mean, it was, it was a very run-of-the-mill yeah. routine kind of existence, and it, it, it was. It, it's really hard looking back on it. You know, I can see in the things that I thought and in the things that I felt that there were tremendous differences between me and the average guy when I, you know, throughout my life then, but our lives really didn't look, they didn't really look, it didn't look weird or different at all. And when, you know, people have asked me this, like, Didn't you suspect that Kathy was a lesbian? No, honestly, really, I didn't. You know, once she said it and I started thinking about it, a lot of things started to fall into place and make sense. But, you know, I really haven't had, I've had a very, I've had a very, very sheltered life in terms of exposure to things like gay and transgender. The first time in my entire life that I had a conversation with a man that I knew was gay, was the guy who cut my hair in Santa Rosa several years ago. I never even talked to, I literally never even talked to someone that I knew was gay until a few years ago. The first trans woman that I ever knew was me. And I, you know, obviously I know quite a few now, but because of support groups and things, but, um, uh, we really had we really had a very sheltered existence, and I, I think maybe "sheltered" is the way to put it. I don't when I talk about how conservative southwestern Michigan is. I don't want to give the impression that it's that it's 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 like fundamentalist oppressive. It, it's not an oppressive environment. It's just very naive, you know. Yeah, well,
2: that does come across naive, and I think it does in your book as well. Although, um, Danny, you did suffer from severe bouts of depression so
3: i mean oh i right had anywhere. horrendous i yeah. was i was the poster child for depression yeah i had i had depression probably as bad as anybody could ever have it And it's been horrendous throughout my life and it's interesting that that i still had depression through the i still had significant issues with depression through the gay thing but since the transgender thing I, i'm fine um and it, when i was um when I, I had surgery on my face, facial feminization surgery, and...
2: And what is that? What is facial feminization surgery?
3: It's, it's a bunch of little tiny tweaks to your face. It turns out that, that, and I'm a radiologist, I'm a doctor who does anatomy for a living, and I didn't really understand this until I started researching it for myself, that there are tiny little things about the face like men have a higher hairline than women women's eyebrows are higher up on their foreheads than men men have thickening of their forehead bone at the eyebrows There's like a ridge of bone across the forehead on men um men have a shorter have a longer upper lip than women um there's there's all these different things about the differences in in the face between a man's face and a woman's face and there's a handful of plastic surgeons in the country who understand this who can take uh, apparently, if you take um, a masculine-looking face and make it look female, that, that face can still pass as a masculine face. But, you know, I was just at my support group meeting last night, and one of the things that I noticed is there were trans men and trans women there. And One of the things that I noticed is that it's really hard for a trans woman to, to look like a, a woman, and particularly our faces, because if you have a masculine face at all some of those masculine features your face just looks masculine but it's not hard for the, the trans men are all absolutely totally convincing as men it's, it's not hard to go from female to male but it's really hard to go from male to female so the surgery helped me with that and the practice manager of the surgery the surgeons practice manager was going over you know my medical issues ahead of time and what medications I was on and And I said, Prozac, and she kind of chuckled, and she said, oh, I'm sorry, I shouldn't laugh. She said, but all of you have depression. And the statistic I've heard, I haven't seen this in print myself, but the statistic I've heard is that half of all trans women have attempted suicide in their lives.
2: Yeah, I'm not surprised because I think there's such confusion, and uh,
3: even maybe there's
2: confusion when I introduced you because we were talking about you coming out together, which is the title of your book. But then the last (laughs)
3: three,
2: what three years ago, then came out as transgender, and I don't even know if I we were clear about that in the beginning. But I think it's. It was a year ago
3: that I came out transgender. A year ago,
2: okay, so it's really recent, and I think that um, my experience straight community and the gay community still is can both are confused about transgender that that yes they are yeah so it's not surprising to me that as a group um you know depression would be something that would be pretty prevalent because you know if people are just beginning to understand well you just facial feminization for example i did i didn't know about that but uh, so just a year ago, you came out as transgendered, and then it sounds like you, like this kind of veil lifted? I mean, like. Yeah, it, yeah.
3: Was, like, it was like a rock the size of the planet Jupiter rolled off my chest.
2: Alright, so it wasn't a veil.
3: <laughs> it was so enormous. We, the, yeah. the, the relief, the emotions that I have felt in my life around the transgender experience are overwhelming and they're the strongest emotions I've ever felt the pain of gender dysphoria all those years was excruciating and indescribable the relief that I feel now that it's going away is is unbelievable is it, I have literally been driving down the road with tears streaming down my cheek tears of joy just at how wonderful it is to be me how wonderful it is to be a woman how wonderful it is to know who I am finally um, you know uh, uh, again it, it's nobody's fault it's just that the, my environment growing up was 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 very naive about that stuff and i there's rampant stuff about me in my past you my in my childhood i knew i was a girl when i was 5 years old um and when i was 13 i desperately wanted to be a girl and I, you know so it was always there it's just there was no framework for me to be able to express it or, uh, or to understand it. And I really, I suppressed it with Herculean effort throughout my entire life. Um, you know, So the
2: energy that it takes to do that.
3: Yes, it's so tremendous. De-
2: yeah, it's tremendous. And, and it's wasted energy. And um, I, So as you're painting this picture, I can understand it. All of a sudden, I can be who I am. This is who I am.
3: Yeah, it's, it's um, very cool.
2: Um and what about the reaction well, let's talk about your children because if you're talking to other people and, and your book is, is is inspiring, I think it really you you give a lot of different kinds of um good messages to help people to well, if they're coming so. out or if they're I hope trained, so. Yeah. And um I think it's an important book. Um Actually, I'm going to present it, to. We have, I, uh, I'm in Albany, New York, and uh, involved in the Pride Center here in Albany. I do a lot of work for them. Well, thank and you. this would be a great book because we do have some kids who are just coming out as transgendered in middle school uh, or feeling yeah. that they are, and they don't have to go through the struggles that you went through. No, um, they don't have to. Yeah. Yeah.
3: I guess that's a really good way to put it is that my life has been an enormous struggle because of this, the attraction to men and because of the transgender issue and it didn't have to be that way. And I don't hold any, I'm not, I don't regret my life. I'm not angry at anyone. There's nothing, I'm not sure how anything could have been different. The only way anything could have been different was for people to have been less naive. And that's a real challenge. But, you know, hopefully with, with this book, you know, that can help with people's naivete and, and, you know, we can move forward with this and, and, you know, I have profound respect for the few small children who have been very forthright in declaring that their gender is not what they were born as. And I have so much admiration for someone who has the strength to do that, to say that when they're five years old or six years old. Um, And we're finding that happening more now.
2: Yeah. Well, everybody needs a voice, and I think this is a really good time in history to be able to have that voice, whatever you are, whoever you are. Um, and uh, so um, it's sort of like the environment is kind of ripe for listening to people, Hey, or listening to, to someone well, who... Well,
3: yeah, you know, I kind of think so. I kind of feel like the environment just wasn't right when I was a kid. I mean, I had these feelings rampantly inside me, just tremendous issues with all of this, Particularly in my childhood and, and adolescence, purity was a nightmare. Um, I went through puberty the wrong way; uh, it was terrible. I here I here I am um, getting stubbly whiskers on my chin and a deeper voice. I'm supposed to be getting I'm supposed to be getting a training bra on my first period.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And 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 yet at the same time, even though I felt that way, I was able to I was really able to deny it. And maybe part of what we need is we need to have a culture in our society where people don't have to deny this anymore, where it's okay for people to say, you know, this is who I am, you know, I have really... You go,
2: Danny, have you gone through the complete physical transition? I mean, because it's only been a year.
3: Um, I was actually just talking to someone about my surgery, um, reassignment surgery, gender reassignment surgery last night. I'm... Tentatively scheduled for gender reassignment surgery this fall. There's a waiting period because the surgery is irreversible. You can't, you can't just run out and get the surgery. You you have to live, you, there's a waiting period. You have to live as your, as your preferred gender for a year before you can have the surgery. And my year won't be up until October. Um, and who
2: does, it? what, there must be, uh, hospitals or physicians who, there are, are
3: surgeons who special... specialize in it. Yeah. 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 Um, Kaiser, I'm a a physician at Kaiser, and that's why I have Kaiser coverage. And Kaiser, as of January 1st, 2013, Kaiser now covers reassignment surgery. So the transgender care center for Kaiser Permanente in Oakland, California, is uh, going to arrange for my surgery and get a surgeon. Um, The understanding is the surgeon I'm supposed to get is the best in the country. And um, it's going to arrange to get the surgeon. So... That part of the that part of the transition is still to come because there's a waiting period because it's irreversible. I've been on estrogen for about a year. Um estrogen is glorious. It's absolutely <laughs> glorious. I I
2: wish I had more of it now. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
3: I put the I started on a patch and I put the patch on yeah. and I thought, Okay, well, I'm on estrogen. Where's the placebo effect? I don't uh-huh. feel any different. And I think, like, Well, I'm tired, I'm going to bed and the next morning when I woke up. I woke up a whole new person in a whole new world. It's okay. everything's going to be okay. I'm at peace. I am calm. Um, estrogen has incredible sweeping. I like little kids more than I used to. I'm much more tolerant around little kids than I used to be it's It's incredible and profound the effects i mean estrogen has profound effects on sex drive too, yeah, and I think that's part of the confusion between. Between st- with straight couples, between confusion between them regarding sexuality, is that the sexual hormones give you a very different feeling about sex when you have testosterone versus estrogen. And I'm one of the few people who would know because I've had both. But yeah,
2: I was going to say you have a window into that. That's very interesting. Yes. I never had really thought about that part of it, but it's true. You've uh, you've. Kind of seen it from both sides. Yeah. What about, they're, they're, what about your ki- your children? I don't know. If oh you yeah, you were
3: gonna you were we were gonna talk about that a minute ago. Um, my two older kids, I don't see them much. They live in Michigan. They're both physicians in Michigan. Um, they they're fine with it. My younger son is who lives out here with me. With well, he lives with his mother now, but um, he used to live with me. He's 17 years old, and you'd think that a 17 year old boy would be very sensitive about all this. He honestly doesn't care in the slightest. His dad's a woman, so what? Yeah,
2: that's And He great. calls,
3: and we're in public, and he, he I'm his father, I'm daddy, I'm a woman. What? What's the problem?
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And he's it's a very tot-
2: different, yeah.
3: He's totally okay with it.
2: Different generation, which is good. Obviously, they have a very well.
3: Different... My under- yeah. My understanding is that you know, one of his friends at school, a girl at school, was bisexual, and and it was just the way he talked about it. It's just like nobody cares. And you know that it wasn 't true, like when I was an age, oh, it was a terrible thing to be to be gay was terrible, and i didn 't even understand transgender then I think I had a faint understanding that there were people born in male bodies who wished they were women, um, going back to when I was twelve or thirteen, based on some things that happened in my during puberty but um, i didn 't even really i didn 't even really get it until i didn 't really get it until it happened to me, you know like I said, the first person I knew that was transgender was me. I never even a lot of us who are transgender live in the community successfully without anybody knowing who we are um, in the gay community that 's called not being out, and in the trans community it 's called living stealth, and a lot of us in the trans community choose to live stealth if we can um, for a variety of reasons, partly is it's part of it is that the trans experience part of what it means to be transgender is you feel compelled to be that gender. You just want to, I just want to be a woman. I don't want to, I I was pretty flamboyant as a gay man. Gay David was was very flamboyant and he stood out. And if if I walked into a room as gay David and someone didn't say, who's that guy with the shirt? I felt bad, you know, and now as a woman, I just want to blend in. I'm a woman. I just want to be a woman. I just want to blend in with the other women. I want everyone to look at me and just think I'm a woman.
2: We have a couple minutes left, actually less than that. So, beside, I want to mention your book again because I think it is an important book and and Thank you. yeah, untying the knot. It's a little bit though um, confusing because it says a husband and wife story of coming out together, David Kaufman and yeah. but it's now Danny. So. The
3: book was officially written by David Kaufman because I was David Kaufman only when I wrote it. The only part of the book that Danny actually, that I actually wrote once I realized who I was and had wanted to be called Danielle, the only part of the book that I wrote at that point was the part of the epilogue where I say that, you know, I'm really transgender and I'm, and I'm starting my transition. The, the book had to go to publisher uh, over a year ago. And so I, all I knew was, Well, no, I'm really transgender, and I got to do this, and that was all I knew. So the book is officially written by David because it was David who wrote it.
2: Uh, Danny, (laughs) Uh, tell us: Are there any websites that listeners should or could go to if they need support? Someone's listening, saying, you know, oh, you know, I think I, I I would like to connect, um, and I don't really know what to do or where to go.
3: Um, there's a really good website for transgender. I think it's only male to female, tsroadmap.com. Andrea James has put together a really good website for that. Um, there are a lot of resources on the web. I can't think of too many of them right off the top of my head.
2: Well, but that's a good one. At least that's one place to start.
3: tsroadmap.com is really good.
2: Okay. Thanks so much for being on the show and uh, oh no problem uh, yeah and and sharing your story and as I said I'm going to make this recommendation to our pride center here in Albany New York Um,
3: thank you
2: yeah thank you we're I'm going to take a short break right now because my guest next guest is here I'm Catherine Zox your social worker with microphone and you're listening to the Catherine Zox show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio Uh, my next guest is Melody Moisey. Uh, Her book is Halidol and Hyacinths: A Bipolar Life. Uh, Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute.
0: Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America.
4: Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite Voice America talk radio network host? How about what's new with our network?
0: you.
2: Welcome back. I'm Catherine Zoch, your social worker with the microphone, and you've been listening to the Catherine Zock show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. My second guest this morning is Melody Moisey. She's an Iranian-American Muslim activist, an attorney, a writer, and uh, she's an award-winning author. And she writes and blogs for, uh, she's written for NPR, the BBC, CNN, and she also blogs for the Huffington Post. Her new book is Haldol and Hyacinths: A Bipolar Life. Welcome to the show, Melody. Nice to have you on this morning.
4: Thanks for having me. All right, so we're going to be talking about how...
2: I like it, the title of the book, Haldol and Hyacinth. I don't know if you... Did you come up with that or did the publisher?
4: I did, actually. It was a placeholder initially because a lot of really smart people don't know what one or the other is, so I'm glad you said that. All
2: right. Well, then let's tell them what... We'll start with Haldol. I know what that is. And sure, Haldol is an
4: antipsychotic,
2: yeah. Yes, an antipsychotic. One of the original antipsychotics that they had in the 70s, I think. Um, yeah. Yeah, and hyacinths, we
4: should know what that is. Yeah, hyacinths are flowers, and they're flowers that we put on our, we call it a sofre, Iranians, uh, and actually other people as well. Uh, It's a Zoroastrian New Year, so the first day of spring is the new year in Iran and Afghanistan and other places. Uh, So we put together a whole, I don't know what you call it, a whole table full of stuff, and the hyacinths represent uh, rebirth. Rebirth, okay, which mm-hmm.
2: is what the book is about, or one of the, one of the uh, themes, I guess. Okay, so yeah. why did you write in and Hyacinth?
4: Uh, my goal was basically to encourage other people to come out, uh, share their stories. The truth is uh, there are a lot of people with really amazing stories, really successful people uh, who are in hiding, and they don't speak out because they're afraid they'll destroy their reputations or lose their jobs. Uh, but the truth is we're not going to get anywhere we're not going to get funding we're not going to fight the discrimination that we face as people with mental illness um, until we start coming out and being public about it and you
2: describe yourself as an iranian american muslim bipolar feminist (laughs) (laughs) that's a lot of words i mean there's a lot of stuff in there right
4: um, yeah, I was I was excited that Penguin bothered to pick up an Iranian American Muslim bipolar feminist memoir, but it's the first of its kind, believe it or not. <laughs> no, I do believe it
2: because I think that in certain, and I'm thinking that you grew up in a very, and maybe this is just an assumption, a very religious background, or um, and actually that, not
4: so much. No, um, yeah, it's really common among Iranians because after the revolution. Religion sort of destroyed the country. Um, so a lot of people, a lot of Iranians, uh, are very averse to religion. And my parents, it wasn't so much that they were averse to it. Uh, it wasn't, we weren't, we didn't go to mosque or anything like that regularly. But the religion of my household was education. Um, my parents insisted that we be educated, me and my sister, and everything and the reason they came to this country um, was so that we could be born here and have all the privileges of being American citizens and because we wouldn't have the rights uh, that we have today. And, you know, as two daughters, uh, they didn't want us to be raised as second-class citizens. So you're very
2: enlightened. You're an enlightened family, obviously. You're an attorney, so you I followed up, obviously, on that education. But, and then you're also an activist, and you were diagnosed at 18 with as bipolar. What happened? I mean, at eight, I mean, that's, that's actually, I think, isn't that the, the most um, common, I don't know if the word is common, but um, many people yeah. are diagnosed at age 18. Um,
4: uh, a lot of people are diagnosed in adolescence. I actually was, wasn't properly diagnosed until I was 29. Um, I started dealing with mental illness seriously at the age of 18, but it's Typical, that people don't get a diagnosis. And for 10 years, I had a misdiagnosis uh, from the age of 19 to 29. Uh, What was your misdiagnosis? What did they diagnose um, you? Unipolar depression. And, you know, I'm not into semantics, but the truth is it really matters. Uh, It's very common. Men are misdiagnosed with schizophrenia. Women are misdiagnosed with depression. The problem is that the medications for depression, the antidepressants that you would take with unipolar depression Actually, induce mania. So, it's the worst thing that you can really be taking if you have bipolar. Without, I mean, you can take antidepressants as long as you're on some sort of mood stabilizer. But if you're not on a mood stabilizer and you're taking an antidepressants, chances are you're going to go manic pretty quickly. So, that's pretty scary stuff. It's really important then to be diagnosed
2: correctly because the medication. Yeah. you say, because of the medication. So, what happened to you? Did you have a major episode or, or, or what happened? Were you in college, in high school? What, what happened to the that- You know, when you first got diagnosed.
4: When I was first diagnosed uh, properly with bipolar, it was a very easy diagnosis because I was in the midst of an acute manic episode. I was, uh, it was a psychotic break. I believed lots of things that weren't true. Um, I thought every magazine I read was written just for me, no matter the magazine. (laughs) Um, Yeah, totally naked in public, that kind of stuff, the kind of crazy, the most people associate with the stereotypes, that was, that was me. Uh, and lucky for me, both my parents are physicians, my sister's a physician, my best friend's are psychiatrists. So immediately I had all these people give uh, concurring opinions, right? So I had half a dozen, uh, quote, second opinions, right? Uh, right? So I was very lucky in that sense, and they immediately accepted Uh, given their backgrounds in medicine, they immediately accepted that this was a real illness that had to be treated, which unfortunately isn't the case for everyone.
2: What you're talking about when you were finally diagnosed correctly, but what happened when you weren't diagnosed, like at 18, or weren't diagnosed correctly because you said that you were diagnosed as unipolar and taking medication that you shouldn't have been taking, which exacerbated your other symptoms? Yeah,
4: yeah. I I started taking that medication. I didn't take the antidepressants all that often. I was on and off of them, and the real time that I was on it was when I became manic. Uh, but I, I did treat the depression. I was dealing with a serious physical illness. I had a pancreatic tumor that thankfully was benign, um, but I almost died a few times. So dealing with that physical illness, I think it's common when people have serious physical illness. It's so-called physical. I find it so strange that we make those distinction, But when people have so-called physical illnesses that we ignore the mind, um, and that's really tough. But, and, and it's because of that distinction between an organic and uh, apparently inorganic illness. When the il- somebody has an illness in their brain, um, suddenly that becomes sort of a character flaw for a lot of people, uh, which is part of the reason that I thought it was important to come out and speak about this issue.
2: Yeah. Well, And I think secrets can be very
4: damaging in trying to cover up <laughs>
2: Um, mm-hmm. you, it's a lot of wa- wasted energy, um, and um, that could be used in a, in a good way, uh, when, as you say. When you, um, when you are honest with what, well, in this case, your diagnosis, and it does help other people. Um, so, what you know, have you had any? I mean, in terms of, your, it sounds like your family has been very supportive, um, and that, yeah. that hasn't, yeah, that hasn't been an issue in terms of your diagnosis. But you know, one of the myths I think people think often is that, well, okay, so you're diagnosed, you get a correct diagnosis, in your case, you're 29 years old, you take your medication, Haldol, and then you're fine. But that's not really true. It, it, it's not <laughs> just you take the medication and then right. you're cured.
4: Yeah, no, that's definitely not true. It's a chronic illness, uh, bipolar. I have bipolar one which is the most extreme form of the illness, so that when I am manic, I can have hallucinations and delusions and have had them. Um, And I think it's important to say, you know, my family was very supportive as being, with them being physicians, and in that sense, I was really lucky. Uh, But at the same time, the stigma was still there, and you're so right that silence keeps us sick. Uh, It induces fear. Um, It just causes a lot of problems for people, I think. Uh, But to say that they were completely supportive from the beginning is definitely not true because they didn't want to tell anybody. You know, with my physical illness, they had no problem telling people. I got flowers and well wishes, and people visited me in the hospital. But this was a big secret, and everyone encouraged me to keep it a secret. And I've been an activist pretty much my whole life. And I've known and I've learned that when people tell you to be quiet about something, it's because you have something important to say.
2: That's well said, and I haven't heard it quite that way. That's true because I think of it, you know, families don't or spouses or even children don't want you to say anything because somehow they feel sh- there's some shame or mm-hmm. guilt or associated with it. Maybe with parents, they think they didn't do the right thing because if mm-hmm. they had, then this wouldn't have happened. I think there's yeah. a lot of emotions there, right?
4: Yeah, for sure. And you know, bipolar is a genetic illness. If you take about two to three percent of the population has the kind of bipolar that I have, which is more extreme, um, but it's genetic. So if you look at identical twins, for example, if one twin has bipolar, there's a 70% chance that the other one will, whereas in the general population there's a 2 to 3% chance. Uh-huh. So that's a big difference, and there is that genetic factor uh, that really, I think you're right, makes parents in particular feel like they may be at fault, uh, which of course obviously isn't the case. Melody, are they or are they in the process
2: of really hard, uh, honing in on uh, actual genes that you know, and they could be different genes that are responsible for yeah, bipolar?: yeah,
4: It's, it's really impressive. People are actually working on a blood test. Um, there are two genes uh, in particular that they've found that are active both in schizophrenia and bipolar, uh, because the manic episodes in bipolar look just like. Uh, paranoia and schizophrenia, which is partly why men are frequently misdiagnosed with schizophrenia. Um, but yeah, they're finding these genes and they're, you know, finding blood tests and things like that. And I'm really excited about it. I'm really excitement, excited about the possibilities for treatment. But at the same time, this isn't an illness that I would wish away. Um, I have, there are a lot of benefits of it. So what are the benefits? Because
2: people are listening and thinking,
4: oh my God, what could be the benefits of of
2: going through all this?
4: (laughs) Um, Well, I mean, first off, the benefits for me as an activist to be able to speak out for other people, but that's a personal benefit. But there's also the fact that I've been pretty successful in my life. I've been able to do a lot of things at the same time. And a lot of that had to do with uh, hypomania. And certain hypomanic kinds of personalities can be very successful. Uh, and that part of the illness has helped me. I would never not treat it. Uh, the thing about treatment is it's not a cure, as you mentioned. It's, it helps you live with the illness uh, but, and manage it. You know, you can manage it very well, uh, but the, a lot of people think, you know, the medications will take away my creativity and things like that. But the truth is, for me, the medications make me able to use my creativity. And, you know, there have been studies to show that people uh, with bipolar and other studies that people with schizophrenia are more creative uh, than the general population. And that's not something I want to lose. Melody, but what
2: about um,
4: noncompliance? Because I know very
2: often, and and actually the the, – People that I've had contact with have actually been young men, and they often will stop t- who have been diagnosed with bipolar, both in in, in my own family and mm-hmm. friends, um, and then they'll stop taking their medication because they will say that it it well sexually it kind of it, it, they they don't feel as sexual it it, it it's uh, you know it's not a it's not positive for their sexual lives, so or whatever it right. is, so that 's one reason yeah. That's a big reason, especially for adolescents or for right. young men, well young women too, or just people yeah. in general yeah. but um, yeah. yeah, so that's one thing, and so but they will say, well i 'm going to be fine, and, and they really stop ta- and they stop taking their medication. Has that happened to you, and why does that happen? Um, yeah, Talk
4: about that because that is a problem yeah. issue. I think it's really important, and I'm glad that you brought it up. You know, noncompliance is definitely an issue because of the side effects of some of these medications. And psychiatrists tend to think, some tend to think that, you know, they don't treat the whole person. They treat the illness. Uh, but, you know, it has all these other side effects that really can destroy your life. A lot of these med- medications can cause a lot, a lot of weight gain, especially the antipsychotics, if you take them regularly. Um, but it's, you know, it's a balance. You have to figure out what you're able to take. You know, people with bipolar 2 or cyclothymia, which is, uh, some people call it bipolar light, are able to manage it without medication. But with bipolar 1 in particular, it's almost impossible to manage without medication. Um, so noncompliance is a huge issue there, right? Um, yep. So to the point, I mean, it's almost impossible to the point that if a psychiatrist does not prescribe something for someone with bipolar 1, it can be construed as malpractice. Um, so the reason I think people are noncompliant is because of those side effects, as you mentioned. Uh, and it's hard to find the right medications. It takes a long time. And unfortunately, some psychiatrists prescribe several medications at once, um, which means you don't know which one's working, which isn't, why it's working, whether it's the interaction, whether you need to be taking all those medications. And I think a lot of people are over-medicated. I take one medication as a mood stabilizer, and on and off whether or not I'm experiencing depression, I add an antidepressant to it. And the one medication I take is a um, mood stabilizer, uh, also an anticonvulsant that's used for people with epilepsy.
2: So you're very, and you also are a very responsible person. I think that's another yeah. piece of it, too, <laughs> given, you know, aside from your diagnosis. but uh, And you as describe your husband is one of the smartest and most rational people you know, so you've made a good choice, it sounds like, in terms yeah. of a partner. Or, uh, For sure. And that makes a difference. Uh, but what about other things? I mean, you talk about eating well, exercise. I mean, these are important things, too, and I think sometimes psychiatrists, overlook those things and they just get hooked Mm -hmm. into the medication and don't, as you say, look at the whole lifestyle and and that's really important?
4: Yeah, I think that's so true. Uh, The kinds of foods you eat, whether you exercise, one of the most important things with bipolar is sleep. If I don't get enough sleep, I can go manic very quickly. And a few times a year I do go, I do have hallucinations. When mania starts coming on for me, uh, one of the first signs are hallucinations. And if I catch those within the first 24 hours or so, I have enough insight that I need to take an antipsychotic. I do take that medication a few times, maybe half a dozen times a year. And it works. It's amazing medication. And, that, I mean, it's the kind of medication that is the reason deinstitutionalization happened in the first place, that we were able to live and integrate ourselves into society in general because these medications existed. They're fantastic, but at the same time, if you take them every day, the side effects are really overwhelming. Then it's really important, I
2: hear you saying, to get the right psychiatrist and to really get someone who knows what they are talking about, I mean, uh, in order yeah. to to manage you or to manage, as you say, I mean, it's a lifelong diagnosis condition. And mm-hmm. so you don't want to go to a psychiatrist or a physician who is not real familiar with yeah. uh, with the diagnosis. Very true. And, you know,
4: primary care doctors increasingly are diagnosing people, which is, you know, and actually medicating them, uh, which I think is pretty irresponsible. Uh, The thing is, people don't seem to get second opinions when it comes to medicine, uh, and especially when it comes to uh, mental illness. So what do you think that is? You know, I, I honestly don't know. For one, I mean, it's expensive, right? I mean, going to five psychiatrists to get that, different opinions is not easy. Lucky for me, I was able to get all these different medical opinions at once without paying for them. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, it makes a really big difference. So, And not only that, I mean, it's, it's frustrating. If you're ha- in the middle of an episode, which is generally when people seek help, to be shopping for different doctors isn't easy. Um, it's time-consuming. So I think consuming. a lot of it. Yeah, exactly.
2: It's time-consuming, yeah. it's expensive, and then it also... Fortunately or unfortunately, I think, and a uh, comment on this, but it kind of puts the patient in the position of having to decide, well, what's the best treatment, who's the best doctor, and how yeah. am I supposed to know because I'm the one who's seeking help. Yeah. Um, so that's difficult, too, and you, yeah. you don't want to make, yeah, make the wrong choice. Some people don't have yeah. the option to go around to, like, the top medical centers, so that, that's another yeah.
4: part of it. Yeah, I'm really for a patient's. Uh, educating themselves Uh, to the point that at one point they may be more educated about their illness than their psychiatrist. Um, It's really important to educate yourself uh, so that you can know what kinds of medications the doctor should be recommending, for example. Uh, Obviously, you're not going to pick your medications on your own, but it needs to be a team effort. Uh, And as a patient, you can't just expect your physician to know everything, Uh, they definitely won't. You need to become an expert in your own illness and advocate for yourself because nobody else is going to do it for you. And that's where social support becomes so important because if you are in the midst of an episode, then you're not in a position uh, to make rational decisions. Uh, But if you have the right social support so other people can help you, you have someone else advocating for you. Um, And I just think there's a power dynamic that exists between physicians and patients and especially between psychiatrists and patients. We give up a lot of power there, uh, especially in patients. You know, this is someone who controls your freedom for at least a short period of time. Uh, So I think patients really need to become their own advocates.
2: I think that's a good point. Maybe we have to be aware as patients that if you go to a physician who is he or she is so sure that they have the answer, maybe you need to beware of that particular uh, yeah. physician and go That's on to so somebody true. else.
4: Yeah. Yeah. People often ask me for advice, and the first piece of advice that I give them is don't trust anything I say yeah. because <laughs> I would never trust the advice of one person. You know, I get, I'll give you advice. I'm not a physician. I'll tell you what it's like to live with this illness. I'll help people who have family members who are dealing with this. Um, but definitely don't listen to just one person educate yourself
2: well in doing so have you come across what would, or i should ask you is there any been any particular one incident where you feel you've been discriminated against because you have been diagnosed as bipolar either in for instance in a,
4: a job situation mm-hmm. Um, fortunately, I'm in a profession where pretty much half of um, us are manic depressive anyway. <laughs> Writers are notorious for these yeah. things. So you hang um, out with the right crowd. Yeah, no, there's that. But, you know, as an attorney, it would be a different issue. I had an op-ed published in the New York Times yesterday about how the uh, bar associations in a lot of states ask about uh, when somebody's applying to join the bar, they ask about mental illness. Uh, when they specified, do you have bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, or any other psychotic disorder? Uh, so that is hands-down discrimination. I was lucky at the time that they didn't have depression on that list because I was misdiagnosed with depression, so I didn't need to lie. But for a lot of attorneys who do have mental illness, they lie. A disproportionate amount of attorneys, and that's perjury because they're lying under oath. Uh, so their options are either lie under oath or risk not being licensed. Uh, so yeah, that, that's a kind of discrimination for sure. Uh, again, inpatient that exists so frequently because um, you give up so much power. You know, at one of the hospitals that I was in for to write this book, I got a lot, all of my medical records. I ordered them, and one of the hospitals that I was in had written, uh, "Patient has delusions that she is an author and a lawyer," and these weren't delusions. I was, oh. I mean, they could have. They didn't need That's to ask my family, scary. which they could have, yeah. but all they had to do was Google me. You know, It would have been yeah. pretty easy. And in, at one point towards the end of that series of records, there's a line that someone had written "Patience has delusions that she's a lawyer, and then they crossed out lawyer, and very quickly after they realized I really was a lawyer, they released me. That's very scary stuff. I'm glad you brought that up
2: because, you yeah. know, sometimes when it's in writing, it sort of makes it, just because it's written doesn't make it so, but kind of we believe that it makes it so and it makes it kind of validates it. Right. Um, boy, that's, a, that's quite an example. Yeah. We have to say goodbye. I'm, and it's, uh, I, I mean, I, I could pick your brain for, I have a lot more questions, <laughs> but um, we'll have to do that next time. But uh, the book, Haldol and Hyacinth, A Bipolar Life, Melody Moisey, uh, we can go online. You have a, a, a website that we can go
4: to? I do. It's just MelodyMoisey.com, or you can Google uh, Haldol and Hyacinth, and you'll find me. More importantly, I would encourage people with mental illness to check out uh, NAMI, uh, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, and also DBSA, the Depression Bipolar Support Alliance. There's a lot of support out there, uh, so look for it.
2: Great. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning.
4: All right. Thank you, Catherine. Yeah.
2: It was a real pleasure Thank talking you. to you. Bye. We're going to say goodbye now. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday.
1: We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel.